Hello, so we are looking at 2 Samuel chapter 19 to 24 and uh, we have come a long way uh, so far. Well done for those who are on track on the Bible challenge, reading the Bible in six months. And so we are at 2 Samuel. This is the last day for 2 Samuel going into Kings, 1 Kings. But before we continue, we need to sort of reflect as to where we've come from in the preceding chapter we see in the previous episode uh, it ended with David mourning the death of his uh, son Absalom and it's as if he was not grateful when the men had accomplished it on his behalf Joab warned him that if he was to jeopardize jeopardize the loyalty of the troops then he would have risked his own life Um, it just shows you how fickle people are and I think later on towards the latter part of uh, the chapter 24 when he had done the census and he had made a mistake and he is given three choices. He chooses not to be at the hands of men. Probably for this very reason, he realizes how fickle they are. And in contrast with the Israelite tribes, Judah welcomes him back. But the others, despite his attempts to promote reconciliation and peace, tribal jealousy and opposition to David's uh, uh, sort of... uh, Kingship is uh, is constantly persistent uh, to be de- de- defragmented uh, in some of the parts. Yeah, the fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy that violence continues to taint the royal court is now being evident here. And the fulfillment of the covenantal uh, promise that God had made uh, to David seems to keep him. And you see that, which is that his followers... They came before him to show support. However, the Israelite tribes, who didn't support, uh, who sub, uh, who didn't support him, uh, supported Absalom, have fled to their homes. So the story continues with two important questions which surface: How will David respond to those who have opposed him during when he had to leave, into somewhat in exile? And uh, will Israel renew its uh, allegiance to David? so that the national unity can be restored. And you see how political this has become. The next episode of the answers to these questions is, in effect, an effort to solidify um, his rule and to restore the national unity. So David extends favor to all, including his enemies as well as his friends. So while Judah welcomes David back, the Israelites' tribes uh, sort of... They want to uh, show some, there's some resistance going on there. And um, they argue amongst themselves, you see it in chapter 19, verses 9 to 10. And then with uh, Judah in 19, sort of 41 to 43. Then Sheba is another character, the Benjamite, even organizes a rebellion against David that he foreshadows the effectual, sort of the eventual succession of the king uh, the israelite tribes and you see this in chapter 20 it's also repeated again you're going to come back to all this in uh, the kings so that's that part um so you know there's so much we can learn if we broke it down which would require some studies as to how we go about it you know um, word by word verse by verse it's very important now if you want to sort of break down David's uh, lineage, and so you you came across a guy called Amasa. So it works like this. You got David. His father was Jesse, and David's mother was Nahash, 
and David and Zerula, uh, and then you had uh, Joab, uh, and then Abishai, and then Asahel, and then on the mother's line you're getting Abigail and Amasa. So why is this important? Okay, you see that uh, Amasa are cousins, Joab and Amasa are cousins. Both are David's nephews, according to Second Samuel, seventeen to twenty-five. Now Abigail's um, father is Naash. Uh, oh, pardon. Yes, yes, it's uh, David's mother and then Naash. We don't know David's mother's name actually. It doesn't mention it. Naash is the father, not uh, the mo- not the mother. I made a mistake there. And um, and then it suggests that uh, Abigail is the half-sister of David. Uh, so what, what you're getting to see is this is our family. And so that's why he says to them, are you not blood of my blood, uh, fl- blood and flesh um, of my, uh, you know, part of, my, part of my family? So it's, you're going to see that how the family is now in, in constant um, uh, betrayal, uh, killing each other. I mean, even Joab murdering his relative. It's not just like an army, uh, you know, sort of soldier trying to fulfill the cabinets of the royal court. This is the, this is a family, and you can see the bloody deeds and and the demolition of the entire uh, attempt to destroy the lineage of David. But as we continue, what can we learn from these? Well, the primary theological theme here in this episode is that the reliability of the Lord's word. On one hand, the, the Lord preserves David's throne in fulfillment to the covenantal promise, right? So you, go, you remember the covenantal promise? It was in Second Samuel chapter 7, 16. On the other hand, the persistent consequences of David's crimes continue to play themselves out. Civil unrest causes by Absalom coup, and then you got continued threats of national of the nation, national unity, then Nathan's prophecy of the sword will not depart, David's court, and this is, yes, going to exile, sustaining by the Davidic uh, throne, uh, which uh, generates hope. And uh, so you got that, and uh, the consequences of the sin, which, which becomes a um, 70,000 somewhat people die because of uh, David's what he calls it a foolish uh, mistake that he makes by requesting a a um, a census yeah 70,000 men so that's what we have and uh, it's not a very um, sort of I would call it a uh, encouraging uh, sort of passage to seeing how David's ending his life I mean he started off so brilliantly and so is with our own lives. We start off always brilliant. And through the course of life, as we go through the journeys, uh, we compromise and make mistakes and fall. But that does not the end, because we should know God's character in all that, that we can come always back to Him. So David is a good example of someone who is able to quickly identify that when he's made a mistake and, and ask for forgiveness. In contrast to Saul, when he's made a mistake, he further digs a deeper hole for himself. So you see that sin sometimes has a devastating consequence. God's justice must be satisfied. And that's what you're getting to see here, is that 
especially in chapter 21, where you see that Saul's crimes brings disaster to seven of his descendants, right? But David is not part of that, is not culpable to those deaths, but yet he's responsible to them. So God's justice is satisfied only when Saul's sin against the Gibeonites is avenged. And how is that, that somebody else's sin can be upon? Well, it can because there's, they made an agreement. But how would you like that you've got to pay for the sins of your forefathers? Yeah, and you've done nothing to that. Well, those in South Africa have a good idea of what that means, uh, given we have a lot of uh, the reconciliation that now is now requiring some compensation uh, from the, the victims. So you're seeing that, and then you think to yourself, well, that's not fair, isn't it? Well, in God's justice, fair, and ju uh, he's, he has to be just as well as a merciful God, as well as a gracious God. So you can't be gracious and have be unfair, then doesn't make him a holy God. So as he is always, David seeks to honor Saul's family, and he keeps aside Mohibosheth. Remember, that's the crippled uh, child, uh, now man, uh, saw Jonathan's son. So he, uh, he keeps him, but he gives the rest seven others. So there's some historical background here. Let me just take you back. I think you probably read it previously. The Gibeonite Treaty which Saul uh, was violated and protected by an oath and its accompanying curses. So if you go to Joshua chapter 9, verse 20, Saul brought a famine, uh, the Saul's crime brought a famine in the land, right? And um, though not mentioned in Joshua 9, the famine is a typical treaty curse in the Western Semitic treaties, right? This is found by one of the scholars, uh, MacArthur, uh, Mekata guy. Uh, so here you see there was a treaty made and it was broken. And because of that uh, treaty, it is, it is, um, there's a punishment on them. So this famine, uh, Israel made a treaty with the Gibeonites in the time of Joshua, promising them that they will not harm them or take their lives as long as the Gibeonites kept part of the bargain and served Israel as laborers, Joshua 9. So Saul violated the treaty. Now you see, if Joshua and the, those guys learned that they are not to make any uh, treaties with anyone and destroy all of them, the land would have been easily theirs. Now they've sought an issue here. So they seek God. And the expression is to see God is to seek his face. And um, they petition him and he speaks to them. He says, his house is blood-stained house, Saul's, that has caused that. And the contrast with David, whom the Lord restrained him from shedding the blood of Nabal and his house. And you get that in First Samuel 25. And Saul's house is guilty of shedding the blood of the Gibeonites because he put the Gibeonites to death. Killing innocent people was uh, typically... Uh, an approach of Saul. You saw how he did it with the priests as well. So they ordered, uh, David orders the deaths of those uh, uh, priests. This is the one, uh, actually, if you remember First uh, Samuel chapter 19, you see how, how wild he can be, uh, Saul can. And then um, let's go into the next chapter. Uh, so David's mighty men, this we're looking at chapter 21. David has a core band 
of loyal soldiers um, who support and protect him in his military endeavors. The Lord accomplishes his uh, great victories uh, through these brave and loyal men. And we see that uh, the Lord enables his chosen servants to accomplish their God-given tasks by providing them with the support they need. And so God will provide that. You know, so many people start ministries and then they want the rest of the world to help them to fulfill it when the world is going against them. Now, undoubtedly, the narrator in here includes this account of the exploits of David's men to honor their memory, one, to inspire later generations with bravery of loyalty, and but also to record the theological dimensions that the Lord chose David to be a lamp of Israel. Chapter 21. Verse 17, and when the enemies taunt Israel, as in 21-21 of First uh, Second Samuel, they threaten to destroy its leader. I mean, their brave supporters, loyal supporters, were able to rally against his aid. And uh, by dividing providence, uh, these men become defenders of Israel's covenantal uh, community and their king. Two times the narrator ascribes the extraordinary achievements of David's men to the Lord. And they're placing their deeds in line with the various victories uh, that has accomplished through Saul and um, David. So you got that. And um, as you go through, you find out about the giants. Uh, it comes out quite often. And the here we find that if you're looking at 22nd, 22. You see, the Lord is my rock, and the Lord protects His chosen servants from those who oppose them and enable them to accomplish the task that He has commissioned them. So God wouldn't give you something that you won't be able to fulfill. The Lord protects David, delivers him from those who seek his life. That's one. The Lord is just and vindicates His loyal followers. And the Lord energizes David for battle and, in, and enables him to defeat those who oppose him. So you see that even though an old getting older now, he's still uh, being guarded and protected by the Lord. His strength comes from the Lord. And so that's something we must remember, that even though we may be good at something, we need the Lord. So the, the Lord expects his chosen servants to promote righteousness and find hope and in for, uh, faithful promises to be fulfilled by our faithfulness to him. Now the Lord expects David as a chosen king to promote righteousness. What you don't see, you see parts of it, but that's when he gets into trouble. David places his hope in God's faithfulness and covenantal promise, knowing that there's not all, this is not all for, uh, for, for no reason. There is a purpose behind it. And uh, it's sad to watch this, that as it as it digress, uh, sort of spirals downwards. The Lord expects his chosen servants to promote this righteousness, right? And so David was to promote righteousness within the covenantal community and to serve as a model of those who respect the Lord's authority. And as they follow him, they, they must know that uh, they also are accountable to God for how they are to respect uh, David. And so it's both ways, the people to the leader and the leader to God. Um, but we now have the Holy Spirit who guides and leads us and trains us, it teaches us into the things of God. Now the plague has another issue here. In the, so it 
sort of in this chapter, we see a quite a disturbing um, issue of the census causing such a great issue to God. Now, there are several sort of observations that we can look here. You see, David suggests that the, the Lord is angry uh, and he's angry with Israel, implying that they have sent each of the three options for judgment that he's been given, uh, designed to impact Israel negatively, suggesting that the Lord primarily, his purpose here all along is to punish Israel. Uh, second one is that one sees the corporate dimension of David's relationship with Israel. Israel's sin promotes the Lord to incite Israel's king to do wrong. And uh, the resulting punishment in return uh, is negatively which impacts Israel. And then third, you find that the though compassionate, the Lord seemingly withholds forgiveness uh, even when David humbles and confesses his foolish actions, as in verse 10, perhaps the fact that the Lord relents can be interpreted as, as a form of forgiveness. But if so, then forgiveness is, in this case, is merely a reduced sentence and punishment. So you, you, you got that. So if there is a, if there is a mercy here, Surely it's a, it is a severe mercy, though it may not be seemingly uh, to the character of God. God is not above using deception to facilitate his uh, punishment uh, of sin. So he's very strong with sin. David knows that he's done wrong. And therefore, you see that the corporate and the individual now, David is a representative of that which all uh, he mentions are uh, what innocent sheep may be a short-sighted uh, verse here. But um, uh, here we see God's, the, you know, God's punishment of sin is sometimes very severe, even when sinners beg for forgiveness. Uh, you remember Bathsheba and, and uh, David where the child is lost? Um, so you get that and God hates sin is perfectly justified in punishing sinners there's no there, there is no need for his grace because they have they have uh, committed treason and uh, destined to judgment so the testimony of God's patience and mercy that we do not read of such uh, in judgment or we don't see beyond the face value of what we've caused, the consequences that has been, um, that has occurred through this. So re the realization and how sin activates the divine anger and judgment, uh, we get to see it sometimes, but we don't get to see it in its full sense. A good example of uh, Moses striking the rock. That's another uh, um, a way of where we, where we can use our own logic and say, well, that doesn't seem very bad. Well, who and what made us to put ourselves in a place of where we are in judgment of God's judgment? You understand? Well, enough of that. Have a blessed day. We are moving forward. Okay, take it easy.